Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I wanted to introduce to you a series I did earlier this year called the Luminary Talks. I invited my colleagues, my mentors, and my friends to give us lectures and inspirational information during this very paradigm-shifting time, which where I feel there's a huge opportunity to reframe how we look at medicine and illness and empower each other today. So I hope that you take this journey and learn from these inspired luminaries and enjoy this series. Yeah, how are you both doing? Hi, Laszlo, good to see you. Hi, how are you? Nice seeing you again. I'm so excited to, really am grateful for both of your time. And this is just, um, my community is learning more and more about this topic. And obviously you all know this the best. And so I'm just excited to continue to educate and share, especially right now, right? It's just, we need more information to feel empowered right now, right? We just got a big endorsement by the Wall Street Journal. Oh, awesome. That's yeah. our, my professor friends. We've been criticizing personalized medicine for a long time. And based on our work, the, John, the Wall Street Journal is running a piece about personalized medicine, how useless it is for uh situations like this. And the Wall Street Journal na names one of my co-authors of our paper and also our group right. in this field. So it seems like we have a chance to come in out as, you know, as- I, Yeah, I keep on like thinking it. like silver lining, right? Like how can we, you know, have an opportunity to, you know, people want more information for sure. I mean, there's, it's definitely hard to get, um, the truth out there given, you know, the state of our um, media right now. But I, I do feel like there's definitely, especially in our community and the communities that you all belong to, there's just this more openness to hearing the truth, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to hold on to that. Yeah, all we can do. Oh, well, we're really grateful for you to do all this. And, you know, I think this, uh, this is a huge time to also, you know, when people hear these things, they just don't understand how much science there is to explain the mechanism of action. And, you know, it's not just this conspiracy theory or esoteric idea, but there's like, you know, the work that you do and what you'll share today is just, I hope people can hear it and see it from I mean, that and then make an opinion. I don't think red blood cells cares, care much about like whatever Fauci was saying. <laughs> <laughs> should, should that be like a bumper sticker? You know? <laughs> yeah, listen, I mean, neither mitochondria, you know, they have their own biochemistry and physiology type of, mm -hmm. you know, set of rules and, and those have to be obeyed. Those mm -hmm. have to be observed. Those have to be, you know, obeyed by human beings who are setting up, you know, certain guidelines and policies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank everyone who is joining us live. And I'm just so honored and grateful that my friends, Dr. Petra Dorfsman and Dr. Laszlo Borosh are here today to talk about deuterium and how this is a really important concept that I really want our community to be more and more educated about because it's a it's something that we look at as a foundation for health and that it can increase resiliency in our immune system and in our body. And we're really going to talk about how deuterium 
relates to infectious disease in this time of COVID. And, you know, my goal for these talks that we're doing this series is to just, I, I feel so blessed. I have all these wonderful friends who are just really amazing experts. And you are sitting to, you were in front of two wonderful experts who have been doing this work with uh, deuteronomics and deuterium. I just want to thank you both for being here. And just, if you're, you don't know about Petra and Laszlo. Uh, Dr. Petra is a naturopathic doctor who practices deuteronomic medicine in West LA. And Dr. Borosh is a professor of pediatrics, endocrinology, and metabolism at UCLA. So welcome. Thank you. Oh. Well, let's dive in. And I um, I know you all have been putting a lot of great information out there. So if, um, this is the first time any of you all have heard about deuterium. We'll send more information in the replay so you can get up to speed, but we're going to you know, just go under the assumption that you've heard about this topic and um, you have some understanding of what deuterium is, we'll dive in. So Petra, why don't we just jump in and why are we really talking about deuterium right now and its role in our susceptibility to viral infections? Can you share a little bit about how deuterium affects our susceptibility to viral infections and how it may affect our immune systems? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there really appear to be four determinants for this particular pandemic that we're currently seeing. And um, I, well, I would argue that the primary is the deuterium load of the individual. Um, a, a second one is the temperature and the humidity that um, the, we find ourselves in in the current environment. Um, and, and then the abnormal electromagnetic um, conditions as well is a third. And then the fourth seems to be the air pollution. Um, so deuterium load is, is something that um, is uh, really causing metabolic crowding and, it's, it's, and deuterium itself is a growth factor for all microbial infections, including viruses. Um, and so the higher our ex the excess levels are in our tissues, um, the more likely it is that we will um, become a very um, good host for the viruses. And um, that is how it relates to the current um, immune system dysfunction that we're seeing in worldwide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just, um, again, I know this is still basic information, but for people out there wondering, um, how do we, how are we exposed to, to, to deuterium and how are, how do we become overwhelmed? How does our system become overwhelmed with deuterium? Um, it's all over our food and water supply. Um, we are living lifestyles that does not allow us to excrete the excess levels and um, tissue levels start to rise. And this is causing this mitochondrial dysfunction. And of course, Dr. Borosh can tell you a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in my simple brain, how I've shared this with patients and I, I've said, that you know, deuterium is naturally occurring, but modern life has you know created an excess of exposure and also an inability or a decreased ability for humans to deplete deuterium, which basically we're we're probably we're all carrying around more deuterium than nature intended, and so that has all of this host of consequences that have have been both of your life's work. So, um, so thank you for for that, Petra, and then Dr. Borosh can. 
Um, you talk about the mechanism by which EMFs play a role in the reported low levels of oxygen COVID patients present with. I think this is a really important topic. There's a lot of um, circulating information about how EMF or 5G might be a important factor to think about here. And so please share your wisdom with us. Yeah, so uh, I'm not a technology guy, so I'm, I'm studying this as a biochemist. Uh, but if, if you look at a red blood cell, which carries oxygen, I think this is a, a common knowledge that we have these big molecules in our red blood cells called hemoglobin. And it has a functional group called porphyrin. It has iron in it. And um, <clears throat> that is the binding site for, for oxygen and metabolites. Just uh, I'll, I'll explain this a little bit better. But uh, uh, iron as a metal can be magnetized. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, and everybody knows this because we saw magnets before. So those are actually metals, iron mostly. And uh, because of the free electrons of, of, of iron, um, they respond to electromagnetic uh, resonance. And it, it's an old publication and there's many other follow-up studies um, shown that actually hemoglobin, the molecule carrying oxygen in our red blood cells and, and, and in our blood, um, behaves as a electromagnetic component. Actually, there are papers discussing how they are uh, becoming electromagnetic, electromagnetic components as part of our biological system. Yet, if you look at these uh, frequency ranges, then you can see that, for example, uh, if you go from 10 uh, gigahertz to 140 gigahertz, uh, the magnetic field, if iron has free electrons, uh, actually increases by fivefold. So th these are historic papers that we can point out and the, the audience can, can look at those papers directly. But, but what, uh, what we think is after all, because of the iron's capacity of binding oxygen, binding uh, carbon dioxide, and there's also a very interesting, intriguing metabolite in um, uh, red blood cells that is called um, 1,2-biphosphoglycerol, uh, uh, it actually binds to and occupies the binding site of oxygen and carbon dioxide when there is no uh, compound to carry there. So it's actually a metabolic kind of fingerprint of how much glucose there is in plasma and how much oxygen has to be dropped off at the tissue level to increase deuterium depletion because sugar glucose is high in deuterium. So red blood cells actually measure this to an intermediary metabolite. It's a mutase enzyme that actually converts uh, biphosphoglycerol into this uh, red blood cell uh, uh, bound metabolite. So looking at these binding states when oxygen, carbon dioxide, and this uh, biphosphoglycerol changes place practically when there are um, these uh, transition times, uh, electrons become free and uh, iron gets can get um, magnetized uh, based on electromagnetic resonance, which is described in the literature. So if you look at various types of electromagnetic resonance, we have to look at how they affect metals in general in our body, which can be um, magnetized, and also how they affect iron binding capacity. The other interesting aspect of, of this scenario is that in our mitochondria, complex four or 
cytochrome C oxidase actually has four iron atoms that are in, in uh, vicinity besides other metals. So it is a very responsive um, uh, enzyme system to electro electromagnetic field. So those studies need to be, and clinicians need to look at uh, some of these uh, basic biochemical information and basic uh, uh, ferromagnetic resonance type of information to see how oxygen binding capacity would change in a certain electromagnetic environment. And I, again, I'm not detect, I'm not an engineer guy, so you have to do your math, but practically this is something that as a basic biochemistry type of argument, you have to look at to see if there's any clinical outcome that can be improved by looking at these scenarios. And this is for clinicians who ask us for help to explain the virus related oxygen uh, carrying uh, this capacity or, or, or uh, uh, compromised patients because they seem they report a oxygen deficiency. There's no oxygen carrying capacity. It's like a high altitude disease. And um, uh, there are many other kind of clinical links and scenarios that we can actually bring into this argument. Now I'm just focusing on, on various electromagnetic resonance fields. Those iron or metals respond to these. So oxygen carrying capacities are actually very dependent on iron's uh, intact magnetic behavior. So these need to be extended into the clinics just to see how we can improve patients' lives into looking at oxygen carrying capacity based on iron magnetism and electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And I agree, it's like there's still, you know, all the points that you just shared um, makes the case where we really need to be looking at this and studying this more. And especially, you know, I always, when we think about EMF, um, I always reference like the iPhone came out in 2007, right? And here we are in 2020 and just looking at how our electromagnetic environment has changed rapidly over, you know, the last two decades and how can we not um, think that this is a potential factor in our health and our, as you say, our, our basically our, our body's ability to deliver oxygen to our tissues. And so I, I think um, you made a really, a lot of great points, which, you know, lead into, right, the, the controversy here. And what we're all seeing is that, you know, that patients who are diagnosed with COVID and in the hospital, they're put on ventilators. And unfortunately, that has a very poor outcome. And so can you just further explain why I think that ventilators are really probably not the, the best option to treat these patients? So uh, positive pressure ventilation is done under sedation, heavy sedation, because the patient has a um, tube in, in, in the, in the trachea. And, and when you actually positively pump pressure into the lungs, there are type one pneumocytes. Those are more like cells, like a balloon. And they actually exchange oxygen uh, between air and red blood cells. And they are very tiny layers of cells. They formulate the, almost the entire surface of the alveoli, which participate in lungs and gas exchange. Now, there are other type of cells that protect these very delicate um, uh, oxygen uh, uh, exchanging and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide exchanging cells simply because they produce a surfactant, which is more like a detergent that keeps these alveoli open. 
while you're breathing pressure, uh, breathing under negative and positive control uh, because of your breathing movements. Uh, now, positive pressure ventilation destroys the cells that actually produce this surfactant. So there's no, it's called bronchopulmonary dysplasia. We studied this with colleagues at UCLA and we published papers which we're gonna make available, but practically the cells that assist and protect these alveoli uh, cells, they become, they transdifferentiate, they become muscle cells and they try to protect the, the airways and the alveoli. And as a result of that, there's gonna be a blockage in the, in the oxygen delivery process. And they also um, don't, the, the, the lungs can actually collapse under negative pressure because of lack of surfactant. And the, sec uh, the third problem, which I think is very significant, besides the physical damage delivered to the lungs, if oxygen and ventilation is lasting too long, especially at high, with high pressures and high oxygen, is that these patients are in a transparent nutrition protocol, which is TPN. Their gut flora dies out practically because there's no food to digest. They have no substrates to and collect deuterium from for their growth. And I have to add bacteria and, and viruses, they need deuterium as one of the growth requirements, as Dr. Dorfman was, was mentioning this. And the gut performs, the gut microbiome performs some of these functions very efficiently. And if the gut microbiome is inefficient in collecting deuterium from food, bacteria die, they cannot deplete deuterium for, for circulating intermediates like lactic acid, which are blood exchanges with the microbiome. And as a result of that, we cannot produce low deuterium ketogenic or ketone bodies like propionic acid that is reabsorbed into circulation to deliver energy to muscle cells. And because of the lack of, of uh, um, these deuterium depleting scenarios in the gut, eventually because of TPN protocols, these patients eventually are not able to deplete deuterium more nanomotors in the mitochondria will break down. Um, oxygen is not uh, available as efficiently and the food has high deuterium because usually uh, TPM protocols are carbohydrate and protein heavy. That means that they have high deuterium content. So it, these, these scenarios just add almost like a, um, like a chain of events that is really hard to address clinically at every stage. So this is why a, a medical biochemistry type of argument, including the, the gut microbiome and looking at all these uh, clinical um, procedures that are related uh, to ventilation or, or artificial ventilation, positive pressure ventilation because of this bronchopulmonary dysplasia, because of the nutrients and glyphosate, which may bind to the uh, red blood cells where uh, glycerol or this biphosphoglycerol binds because of the structural similarities. And usually these are industry processed food that are in high in deuterium and also they are provided in TPM protocols to the best of my knowledge. All these scenarios line up and eventually put these patients in a very difficult clinical situation. And this is why we're addressing these issues with clinicians who are asking for help right now, because they don't really know why these patients become desaturated so rapidly, so easily. 
and why is it so hard to saturate them and why do they need artificial ventilation or positive pressure ventilation and 90% of these 80 to 90% of these patients die. So it's really hard to kind of imagine why a protocol would enforce or would, you know, um, the place uh, put in place medical procedures where the death rate is 80%. It's, it's really, to me, as a scientist, as a teacher, I don't practice medicine, so this is not a medical advice. This is just addressing some of the clinical issues that are brought to our attention. So I really don't know why uh, these procedures are in place. It's not my job to judge these uh, policies, but practically, if you look at the medical and biochemistry point of view, they don't really make much sense. If yeah. if you if you hear me out, it's it's practically from from what we know um, uh, as biochemists, it, it's it's really hard to understand why these uh, procedures are in place without again criticizing anybody. It's not my job to set those policies, but if we can have doctors, physicians who have questions in these directions, or anybody who is listening to this podcast, we are very happy to elaborate on these further. Yeah, it's this perfect storm, right? When you go to the hospital and if you're in that situation and then, as you said, a chain of events starts where, you know, it, it's almost impossible for the patient to expect a recovery at that at that point in time, which is, you know, heartbreaking from, you know, my my standpoint. I mean, have you, have you all contemplated what should be protocols or procedures that um, should be how we should be responding given you know everything that you know I mean I know there are these videos circulating from ER, the ER doctor talking about this looking like altitude sickness and this you know really oxygenating um, the, the patients rather than ventilation but have you um, do you have any opinions on that at this point? Well I can't make kind of three UN recommendations and I won't but mm -hmm. I'm very happy to talk. Theoretical. <laughs> people who actually uh, have more clinical experience. I don't have that much clinical experience, even though I work with clinicians on a regular basis. I just solve their problems. Usually, that's my as a biochemist. You as a clinician, do you have any? I do not work with critical care or acute care um, mm -hmm. patients, but what we've learned from the endless. Um, uh, webinars that have been available is oxygen therapy should be first before anything else. And all sorts of oxidative therapies, by the way. So whether that's um, hyperbaric oxygen, um, ozone, um, or just a, um, uh, what do you call that? You're, breathing mask. Yeah, there you go, breathing mask. Those yeah. are all really basic places to start. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Well, in the meantime, due to depletion, you through IVs or, or drinking water or food would be also um, logical from, from the biochemistry point of view. I think that should be the first um, thing to start to actually address some of the morbidities simply because mm -hmm. uh, diabetes, uh, the metabolic syndrome, those comorbidities may be deuterium-related in the first place. So when you look at obesity, high blood pressure, um, when you look at um, you know cancer, uh, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, you may see deuterium depletion in the first place happen 
the acute clinical scenario and also the underlying diseases that put these patients in a more difficult situation simply because they already have diabetes, which uh, binds, for example, uh, diabetes with high glucose, circulating glucose, provides more of this biphosphoglycerol metabolite that binds to red blood cells. So the so oxygen cannot occupy its binding site as easily. So when it's, you know, being a patient desaturated is, is a number of uh, factors kind of working in disadvantage of like carrying oxygen from uh, lungs to tissues. And if you kind of address those through nutrition, through metabolism, through biochemistry, uh, the team depletion should be one of the first um, uh, interventions that you may consider simply to improve muscle, peripheral tissue, mitochondrial functions, um, because water is very critical in mitochondrial functions and oxygen is needed and the hydrogen from food to make matrix water and oxygen is not available. And in the meantime, um, food is high in deuterium, you just break more mitochondria, which would deliver ATP for those cells. So for peripheral cells. So, and multiple organ failure is a very critical advance uh, scenario, which obviously may end up in, in high mortality rates in and during this ventilation process and the disease process simply because these 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 factors are just kind of um, just like in a chain of events they just you know make this this oxygen delivery metabolic water production between diffusion process very difficult because the team breaks the nanomotors in mitochondria and also has some other uh, disadvantageous effects water be water metabolic matrix water cannot go through uh, quantum destabilization of the proton, so water cannot be broken as easy because the tutin compromises these processes. This is very new information, so I just, I'm just kind of flushing them up so people hear about these and then they may start do their own research uh, regarding these scenarios. But I think this kind of uh, interaction should start with clinicians especially emergency doctors and also with naturopathic medicine because they can actually start address, at least addressing the comorbidities. Do you have anything? Absolutely. Deuterium depletion is the place to start for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing all of that, Dr. Borosh. And, um, you know, I, I think a big goal of, you know, this talk is to give people another perspective and another lens to see what's going on, which you've done beautifully. And, you know, going kind of a step further, Dr. Petra, I mean, can you talk a little bit, we have a lot of questions about how do people, like just the 101 on deuterium depletion, you know, really how you guide, you know, patients, how, how do we um, guide patients in being healthy during this time through the lens of deuterium depletion? Yeah, so the first place to start is to consume fats and not sugars. Um, that's a big one. Um, all kinds of fats are, are important. Um, but most important is that they are naturally um, derived from animals that have been grown sustainably and um, uh, vegetables that are not um, genetically modified. So all those, the fats, grass-fed butter is excellent. 
Um, and then you want to consume um, high quality proteins, same situation as, as best um, naturally as you can find. And then just non-starchy vegetables. Um, that's a great place to start nutritionally. Um, the liquids one consumes should be really guided by thirst. And um, uh, we prefer filtered or spring water. Um, and again, you know, once the thirst comes up, sit with that for a little bit and, and allow your body to compensate for that. And then if you're still thirsty, go ahead and drink water. Um, then there are the aspects of um, getting sunlight, which is very important. Um, uh, my new favorite one that I've been experiencing myself in the last six weeks being in this lockdown, which is exercise on a regular basis and strength training. And I think that's also very um, helpful. Um, sweating it out, that's great. Um, uh, let's see what else is on my list. So, um, oh, having someone uh, wash your back really well, scrub it well. There's great research on that. <laughs> it's actually the sun exposed skin areas. We can't actually scrub our skin to remove deuterium loaded keratinocytes from our skin. So this is why if you look at a nature movie in Africa, all the birds and all the kind of the symbiotic kind of fauna participants, they actually sit on the back of these animals, which are exposed to sun mostly. And their skin and keratinocytes are also one way of, uh, of getting rid of deuterium. And simply, uh, this is why animals, they scratch their back at tree trunks and, and they actually use all opportunities to actually scrape their keratinocytes, um, especially this is one of the mechanisms we believe is part of itching, just to actually um, deplete deuterium or actually get rid of deuterium through keratinocytes, which is actually your biggest surface of your, your, your the big surface type of, of, of approach to deuterium depletion, your skin surface is what is exposed to sun in normal conditions. So um, anything that, that uh, nutritionally and lifestyle goes, anything that gets rid of dead tissues, anything that is getting rid of waste products, anything that is part of your normal gut flora as uh, still is produced by, by the gut flora collecting deuterium from food. Anything that is naturally helping you to deplete deuterium, that should be involved in your skin, your uh, uh, breathing, your, 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 your uh, uh, exchange of vapor and, and oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, uh, in, in a normal or in a physiological fashion. Also, your food is very important. All these major body components, digestion, breathing, uh, food intake, and skin care, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, scrubbing, not necessarily putting oil, oil, oils and stuff on your skin, but that can also be an approach. I'm not like a, a I'm not big on, on uh, supplements and stuff. So, you know, and, and you know, uh, skin, uh, creams and I don't know what, you know, what, what are in those. But practically anything that is, you know, that is comfortable and it actually uh, feels important and, and, and you can actually relate to these very conventional, uh, very general 
Uh, and this is what the Wall Street Journal is, is giving us a big endorsement. Just I put it on my Facebook page. I've been part of a, um, um, a group of professors. Uh, some, of, some of them are from Mayo, from Johns Hopkins and so on. Uh, um, and actually, because of this COVID uh, uh, situation, our approach, which is a more generalized, just like these very uh, common rules that we mentioned and the protocols that we entertained in the last few years, um, seems to be now um, very valid and very um, influential as far as making decisions or recommendations to had policymakers. And this is by the Wall Street Journal uh, just mentioned um, one of my co-authors, one of my articles. We're gonna provide this information also for the audience so they can actually evaluate for themselves. But it seems that general um, hat measures, um, including all these body parts are very important to fight this virus mm -hmm. this pandemics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Lucky's recommend. Oh, go ahead, Patron. Yeah, no, I just want to add turn off the mainstream media. That's another <laughs> one of my uh, suggestions. And um, make sure you laugh and love and um, sleep really well. Those are the other pieces that are definitely part of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love it. It's just a lot of the foundational naturopathic principles that um, we know and trust well. And I had no, I didn't know that connection of the uh, deuterium depletion through the skin and the keratinocytes. So that is new to me. So that that's wonderful. So, you know, I, I know you all talk about this in other channels, but I just know um, some of my audience might be wanting to go a little bit deeper in individualizing deuterium depletion for themselves. And so do you, do you just assume everybody has high deuterium levels? Or how do you talk about testing or just even talking a little bit about deuterium depleted water and how you incorporate that into protocols. Do you mind touching on that a bit, Adrian? Yeah, I, I um, really design any kind of protocol very personalized. So it mm -hmm. depends on what someone presents with, what their um, health challenge is like. And based on um, their uh, ability to afford the water and make it part of a um, protocol, um, we then um, look deeper as to what their weight is, how much water they consume, and all of that. Um, that's how we design the protocol specifically for somebody. Um, but all of the um, depleting mechanisms that we just talked about truly work for everyone. And um, uh, it is a great place to start. I think most people can assume that their levels are too high and that we should deplete. Um, and you will know really quickly whether that has an effect for you because you will notice um, uh, a diminishing of symptoms. You will um, hopefully increase your energy. Um, there's a lot of pieces to this that would work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just exactly what you shared. Um, so these are great lifestyle tools for everyone. And then, you know, if you're really struggling with a chronic condition, you know, going a step further will, um, will accelerate your body's ability to heal. And, you know, Pedro does a lot of that work in her clinical practice. So if you want to dive deeper, please connect with her in that way. Pedro, did you miss anything else you wanted to share about resiliency and our, um, you know, immune systems at that this point? I mean, I, I feel like, 
you know, the most empowering message we all can share with our community is, you know, not to be afraid of the virus, but how do we, you know, trust our immune systems and how do we strengthen our immune systems, um, you know, with everything you just shared, of course, but I just want to give you the opportunity before we move on to the next topic, if you have any other words of wisdom along those lines. I think I, I covered really, truly the most important pieces of it. And um, uh, I think perhaps the only other part I would say is that trust your body to um, take care of it, to handle it, to be able to um, clear the viruses or the microbes that you come in contact with. If you truly adopt a lot of these lifestyle um, changes, you should be able to handle all of this and just function in society normally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've just, um, I, we've collaborated on some patients and I've seen, um, you know, when Petra becomes part of the team, how things shift for people. So I know this is powerful work. So, well, great. And so Dr. Boros, you know, what can you add? I and mean, we've touched on a lot, but from your medical biochemical um, words of wisdom, how, do, how can we stay, quote, virus free during this time? Well, I don't think staying virus-free is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. uh, to protect the people who are more susceptible to develop mm -hmm. uh, complications as a result of a virus infection. Um, coronaviruses cause uh, sinus infections, the cold in general. Uh, the natural host for coronaviruses are, are dogs. There are about 60 different serotypes. Uh, so um, our immune system, if we are, again, without comorbidities and, and we have uh, an intact immune system, this should not cause any major medical problem. And we know from epidemiological studies that every patient who has symptoms or uh, tests positive, quote unquote, not all the tests are good, Yet every pe every person who show shows symptoms of coronavirus, there are 85 other people who already survived and have no symptoms and have antibodies. So they met the virus already and they fought them off uh, without any problem. So really truly, when we look at a epidemics and pandemics, we have to consider what uh, is the disease causing the morbidity, mortality. Uh, and what's, what's the general infectious kind of uh, protocol that we need to consider. And this is why these um, uh, particular recommendations by uh, policymakers, uh, you know, were put in place simply because this virus seems to be very contagious, uh, yet they did not know in advance that actually it's maybe like a flu kind of season because there were no data uh, to see how many people were affected, how many people developed complications, how many people showed symptoms, and how many people died. If you look at those numbers now, after three, four months into this epidemic, starting uh, in December, now we are a lot smarter. And this is why there are controversial recommendations as the pandemic develops. Uh, sometimes we need to wear masks, and then masks are not recommended. Some experts say this, some experts say that. Clearly the statistics show that this is really not a uh, extremely dangerous virus. Maybe this is uh, clinically and epidemiologically, it's matching a bad or even just an average flu season. 
we know lockdown is uh, statistically will not alter the outcome or the course of the epidemics. Just look at Sweden and some other countries who never done any lockdown. They are actually doing better than uh, some of the states in the US. Uh, populated states uh, have different outcomes simply because people are more dense. Um, uh, uh, states that didn't lock down entirely, they do maybe better almost, I would say. This is, these are epidemiological uh, data and evaluations. I'm, I'm not saying this just because mm -hmm. there's no supporting data. From Stanford, they tested, even in California where we live, uh, we do know that the number of cases seem to don't match the expectation Well, the modeling, and we know the modeling was the basic modeling that set up these very uh, uh, draconic, uh, uh, you know, policies were actually false. And the guy who actually predicted them, I think he's already retiring from his position and we know more about that. <laughs> yeah, Neil Ferguson, he, he resigned earlier this week from the Imperial College. But all of those models turned out to be incorrect. Well, what, what happened is, uh, as, as, as I understand, he didn't even consider his own infection and exposure to the virus and quarantine series, so he had visitors in the meantime. And uh, for that reason, he had to resign from his position, and he was the main policymaker be behind the recommendation. So I sometimes look at this, you know, just uh, really... I would say it's really hard to understand what's happening without, uh, you know, elaborating this further. But simply as a biochemist, as a as, a, as somebody who teaches uh, uh, medical biochemistry at, at, at a college and edit newspaper articles, review newspaper articles, and I look, up, I have a lot of information about the scientific or the clinical approach and the epidemiolo epidemiological approach and results. It, to me, it, 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 it is more important to follow some general guidelines, uh, follow recommendations from naturopathic uh, doctors. Obviously, your, your standard doctor is also very important to talk to, but all these information are very important handy to make decisions for your own goods, simply because looking at the major media is not representing what's happening in real time. So. As Dr. Grossman was saying, turn off your TV. I think that's the most important thing. Um, and uh, start looking at some routine cleaning protocols, which will, you know, uh, help your body to fight this virus infection or bacterial infection simply because there are bacteria over infections of virus infections which compromise your immune system. But practically, you know, there are measures that you can do on your own once you turn your media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for all of that. And no, I, I think that's all wonderful advice. And we're just really in our community, I think, is always seeking out alternative views and, you know, trying to find the truth, you know, outside of the mainstream media, because you can't find it there. Um, so no, I, I appreciate you sharing all of this. And are you guys, I feel like this is a good place to take some questions. Does that, is there anything else on your mind you want to share before we dive in? We have some questions that I think will help help our audience just uh, dive into this more. Okay. So Petra, what is the difference between deuterium depleted water and structured water? Actually, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, 
or or are they mutually exclusive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we have to work on this together. This is yeah. medicinal, inorganic chemistry. So structured water is part of your mitochondrial or inner water compartments. Water can bind to other water molecules or it, or it can bind to the surface that is attached to. And once water is binding to the surface, then it becomes surface water or structured water. Mm -hmm. Now, because of um, hydrogen binding to surface water, usually one of the, or the surface and hydrogen has more um, like kind of flexibility and <coughs> deuterium binds um, stronger to the surfaces. The molecules, water molecules that actually remain in a solvent, because you can actually look at this as, as, as water trying to dissolve the surface, it actually is deuterium depleted. So one of the way of depleting deuterium is actually using the surface where actually deuterium has bind, higher binding capacity and the free water molecules and at like higher layers, which are not close to the surface, they may be uh, deuterium depleted. Now, uh, surface water and deuterium depleted water, these are two different scenarios. Even though surface water or structuring water may deplete deuterium in the free moving layers, deuterium depletion is, is, is a physical process or deuterium discrimination is a biological process in our system, simply using some physical and inorganic chemistry related principles, which I, I don't wanna go into details, but you can actually fractionate water, boil water and generate a, uh, generate a water vapor, which is less uh, water uh, deuterium heavy, meaning that deuterium remains in the solvent phase and the vapor has less deuterium, simply because deuterium has different uh, physical chemical characteristics. And this is why we have seasonal flu, and this is why these seasonal diseases appear at a certain cold time, because if our airways are cold, our mucosal cells and our mucus has more deuterium that is left in the mucus itself as long as the airways are cold because in cold water deuterium fractionates harder meaning that there is uh, uh, less deuterium in the vapor phase so your mucosa has more deuterium and this is why bacteria and viruses and virus hosting sac and actually cells can actually host more more um, um, uh, more bacteria and viruses so they grow faster this is why these seasonal flus either appear on the north or the south hemisphere, depending on where cold weather is, simply because of this deuterium fractionation process, but it's temperature dependent after all. So, so uh, and it's a good question. Uh, structured water is not necessarily, all waters can be structured, deuterium depleted, and also uh, like regular environmental water. And, but the structuring of water may deplete deuterium of the free moving layers. So they are physically, because these are physical processes, they, they may interact, but one does not derive from the other directly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm, I'm, we have a lot of patients with chronic sinus issues, um, and I'm just thinking deuterium depletion should be a, play a huge role in covering that outside of the COVID world. So thank you for um, describing all of that. So this is just a little bit more detailed. So does Mountain Valley water deplete deuterium? Someone's asking. So do you know the deuterium content in Mountain Valley water? Have you all looked at that? I think it's 140 ppm. And that would be considered, is it 135 and under is? 
125 and under. Okay. But you know, it's lower than tap water. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Most most tap water is between 148 and 150. Mm -hmm. And then people asking about links to the study. So I'm happy to share all of that in the replay and of course your websites. And then, um, oh, Stephanie Senefson. So what is the connection to humidity? So, um, hi, Stephanie. So Petra, you had mentioned, I think humidity in the beginning. So any comments, humidity? Yeah, I mean, this relates really what um, Dr. Borsch was just saying about um, the uh, ability of your body to fractionate the diphtherium out. And um, in higher temperatures, we are gonna be able to do that more effectively. Um, and humidity, how does that exactly? Yeah, so, so the outside humidity or the envir environmental humidity is different of our airways humidity because our exhaled air has 100% humidity. So this is one way we, we actually get rid of, of, of water or vapor quickly, practically through the lungs. It's 100% it's humidity. That's what the exhale, exhaled air is. Once, once we uh, inhale air, then it depends on environmental humidity. It can be lower. I guess not right now we have about 20% humidity. So it's one of the, the ways of getting rid of the germ is practically through your body vapor or your, your exhaled hair, air. Now, uh, interestingly, the human air uh, or the exhaled humidity has lower deuterium than the environment of deuterium. This is because it's coming from metabolic water, or at least it is part of our bodies to deplete deuterium through the gut. So whatever we absorb as far as nutrients and make water of it, it's already deuterium depleted. So the human breath normal in under normal conditions should be somewhere around 135 or lower. If you are actually consuming the right diet. Unfortunately, and Dr. Dorsman can talk to this, talk about this a little bit more, once we measure deuterium content in breath, then in the general population, especially in California, because we are close to the coastline, so the air humidity is about 155 ppm because the Atlantic Ocean is very close to here, and 155 ppm is what we have in the oceanic vapor, close to the coastline, it's about 155. So practically the dry air helps us to breathe out and we don't want to breathe in due to uh, heavy humidity and humidity carries heat as well. So high temperature humidity is the best to get rid of virus infections or get rid of airway infections or deplete determine your mucus and mucosal membranes. However, uh, high humidity, especially the oceanic kind of coastline, uh, may not be advantageous simply because of the high deuterium content of the inhaled vapor. Again, these are scenarios that we have to put in and weigh which one is more important. And it's a very good question from Dr. Senef, and I know uh, because we work on this together and we discuss these topics together, but I think eventually we'll, we'll have some kind of a, a common ground or, or we develop some important uh, scientific and clinical guidelines to actually transfer glutenomics to standard medicine and standard care. And this is one of our goals of uh, presenting uh, and talking about these topics, maybe a little bit uh, more of a complicated biochemical context, but 
natural naturopathic doctors and 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 people and you yourself who actually can uh, translate this to to the patient's uh, understanding and, and important um, information delivered and discussed obviously um, it should be part of it but the humidity high temperature or, or warm that's why we have inhalation that's why we recommend people with sinus infections to actually uh, inhale hot tea wafers and so on you want to heat up your airways to get rid of the high deuterium mucus, you actually increase your airway temperatures to actually make this fractionation more efficient in your airways. Just like we produce deuterium depleted water in laboratories, we actually use this evaporation process. We use heat and vacuum. So all those actually work in the same way in our airways. Uh, they work the same way in our airways. So simply, this is this is a very good question, but it's part of the deuterium fractionation process. Thank you. So the steam distillation and inhalation that will, you know, in in a lot of our naturopathic protocols, I'll, I'm going to start using that more with, um, you know, my chronic sinus patients. So thank you, thank you. So a lot of questions about hydrogen water, hydrogen tablets. Any comments on, you know, your opinion of hydrogen water and how that, you know, just how that interacts with deuterium, these concepts of deuterium depletion? Yeah, so uh, this is a very kind of, I would say, interesting topic uh, because from the biochemistry kind of viewpoint or the biochemistry argument, uh, hydrogen as a gas uh, is really not very stable, especially in a, in a biologically um, surrounding environment, simply because hydrogen gas and oxygen do not react in like normal temperatures, like, uh, like uh, um, environmental temperatures. But once you get uh, hydrogen gas in your body because of the electron transport chain, which actually works like a spark plug in a car to activate oxygen, it would actually consume uh, hydrogen gas very quickly uh, in the form of, of water producing peroxide or water. That's practically what our body does. This is how we actually generate from a proton cloud. This is how we generate water. And um, because of uh, uh, some physical processes produce hydrogen with, with lower deuterium, um, some arguments actually favor consuming hydrogen water or hydrogenated water or electrolyzed water. Um, I'm not sure how technology is fitted to this process. Um, from the medical medicine or biochemistry point of view, hydrogen gas is very short-lived in cells and also in, in biological systems simply because of the electron transport chain and also because of the the uh, temperature, um, uh, you know, conditions in mitochondria, which actually produce a lot of heat, simply because that's that's the job of mitochondria, and we actually use uh, those proton channels, which are actually um, bypassing the ATP synthase nanomotors, um, uh, which actually produce just heat for the cells. Meaning that, uh, you know, it's it's. There should be studies, uh, you know, delivered just to kind of rephrase these questions and ask uh, and provide answers. Uh, I think hydrogen water may be beneficial in some conditions. I'm not saying it's it's good or bad, um, but it 
hydrogen gas in any biological system is very short-lived. Uh, there are bacteria that produce hydrogen gas in our gut, but I believe, but we know that that's practically because of the ATPase or ATP-dependent proton pumps, which actually pump protons from bacteria to retain deuterium because deuterium is a growth factor for bacteria and virus hosting cells. So again, putting all these scenarios together, it may be good. I can't take a position and I won't take a position on that. Uh, I think it's, it's as a gas form, especially in the presence of activated oxygen, it may be very short-lived. Thank you. Yeah, no, I was, I'm, I'm very curious. I, I was very curious about your opinion around that. So thank you for that. So there's a couple other comments about, you know, just with the role of sauna therapy and also red or infrared light therapy and deuterium depletion. Any um, feedback about that as a strategy to de deplete deuterium? I think those are beneficial, absolutely. Um, I, you know, as we know, sunlight is 40% um, infrared light. And so that's, it can be very beneficial. And of course, be mindful for not burning and all of that. But um, in that same way, saunas, I think are good because it makes you sweat. And so you can um, uh, excrete in that way. So yeah, I think those are good mm -hmm. too. Stephanie said a comment, the hydrogen gas that is produced by bacteria is very low in deuterium in part because the enzyme has a strong deuterium isotope effect. So just yeah, yeah, that's correct. So that, that's why I was saying that the deuterium content of these hydrogen gas products are low. Yet again, the question is how far they penetrate into host into the host from the gut simply because hydrogen is very reactive. It's actually called the exploding gas. If you remember in elementary school, the teacher was bringing in a balloon with hydrogen collected from water breaking electrolyte uh, to electrolysis, and they actually using the spark, they actually ignited the 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 balloon and actually the reaction took place in a matter of fraction of seconds, meaning that it actually exploded. That's why you had to do this experiment in the gym because, and that's why the teacher was holding this stick uh, with the spark uh, on a long uh, um, uh, stick practically because it's very dangerous. And that's what happens in our body. And because of the electron transport chain, which bacteria have, and also epithelial cells have, endothelial cells have, every passage of hydrogen gas through these cell compartments or, or electro, electro, electromagnetic fields, which are in the cells, are very rapidly use up the hydrogen that is produced in, in the gut. Um, I, I, it, it is very beneficial because it's low deuterium and it may be protecting the epithelial or endothelial cells simply because they are in the vicinity. And uh, we know the protection and protecting the epithelial cells of gut is very important because of the leaking gut syndrome. So uh, again, there might be very important uh, uh, common biochemistry arguments that we should actually line up with the indication. We just need to do those studies. And, and Dr. Sanek knows this very well because we are scientists. So sure enough, I'm very happy to work on these because these are very important and interesting initiatives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. 
both of your heads or all three of you in one room would be amazing to, you know, keep fleshing these ideas out. One, I think one last question before we wrap up is the role of ozone in deuterium depletion. Do you guys feel comfortable talking about that or um, sharing any insights on ozone therapy and deuterium depletion? Um, well, I'll just briefly add my little part to that is that um, one of our colleagues, Dr. Whitney, um, provides ozone 10 pass therapy. And we actually did, of course, this is anecdotal, but we did a um, uh, testing before and after a treatment, and there was a reduction in um, deuterium. So um, it's an oxidative therapy that, that depletes deuterium in, in that sense. So that's my clinical part. I, I actually did argue a case with the California Medical Board um, that was related to Lyme. Mm. Uh, and ozone treatment was part of the scenarios that was entertained in, in, in that argument. And simply because ozone provides more oxygen uh, at the tissue level, there's more metabolic water production, the capacity of cells and mitochondria increase simply because of the oxygen's higher uh, uh, partial pressure. And as a result of that, uh, ozone treatment helps our mitochondria, our tissues to actually produce more between depleted metabolic water in case we consume the optimal diet, ketogenic diet, because ozone treatment per se does not introduce between depleted uh, hydrogen gas just like the gut flora, what Dr. Seneff was, was referring to, ozone treatment only delivers the oxygen of water and hydrogen still has to be obtained from food or some other ways, but yet it's very important to provide enough oxygen, sufficient oxygen in certain disease conditions. Chronic fatigue was obviously one of these scenarios where ATP synthesis is producing capacities and this is where the clinical benefits come not my experience, but I do work with clinicians. But in fact, it helps deuterium depletion only if you consume the appropriate ketogenic diet with low deuterium hydrogen source. And for that, these two technologies can kind of complement each other, one another, but simply you have to make some, take some uh, dietary consideration. Mm -hmm. The more I learn about deuterium and deuterium depletion, it makes me think about all the clinical tools that we've seen work, you know, with our patients, um, kind of reframe them in the lens of how do they affect deuterium and, you know, are they, is that one of the mechanisms that we've just underestimated um, over the years, you know, so it's, it's really fascinating. Well, I want to honor your time. I know you both are so busy and uh, we are beyond grateful for you all sharing your perspective and your knowledge and your wisdom today. And if people want to find out more about um, both of you and your work, can you just share, we'll put it in the um, the notes for the, the talk, but I just want people to, they want to go start Googling uh, where to find you and to dive into this more. Where can they find you online? So I have a website. It's very easy. It's uh, Laszlo G. Boros. Dot com, and uh, you can find additional information about deuteronomics. Deuteronomics is the how nature deals with deuterium depletion, and there's a medical biochemistry fitting of we call it medical deuteronomics. And you are right, uh, once you learn about deuterium depletion, a whole new kind of field opens up simply because now you see why of these alternative approaches 
get a very oxygen or ketogenic diet or low-dictin food or improving your microbiome functions would actually assess your patients and, and, and help them to be in, in, in better shape and health. Okay. Um, and my website is drpatrond.com. That's where you can find me every time. And you do consults online if people are in California or anywhere in the world? Um, yes, I, I will do um, virtual consults with um, anyone in the world. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your time. There was so much great information here today. So thank you both. And I hope to see you both soon. And um, when the world opens up again, um, and I can come down to California, I'd love to spend some time with you both. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you all. And have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.